thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to The Abnormal Psychologist, the show that shares everyday insights into getting the best out of your mind, body, and lifestyle. Now, please welcome your host, The Abnormal Psychologist herself, Carrie Thompson-Casey. Hello there, how are you going? It's time for another episode of The Abnormal Psychologist with me, your host, Carrie Thompson-Casey, the show where we are giving you the how-to to get the best out of you. And today we are talking about healing the heart and mind through mindfulness practice with the marvelous Mal Huckster, who I had the privilege of meeting several years ago in beautiful Byron Bay. So welcome, Malcolm. Hi. So Malcolm, you, in my mind, uh, for me, uh, you're very pivotal in, in my learning as a psychologist around the concepts of mindfulness, but I am a complete absolute rookie when it comes to uh, the origins of mindfulness and and practicing. And I'm really glad that I've got you here because I'm hoping that you can share with both me and the listeners a bit more about mindfulness. But before we get going, can you tell us how did, how did mindfulness come into your life? Oh, dear. Now, I was a teenager and I was in art school. I was studying photography and art and music and uh, sound in Melbourne, in Preston Institute of Technology in Melbourne. And I met up with a friend um, who said to me, we, talk, we talk, met up in the dark room actually and we were talking away and he invited me back to his place and we were chatting away and he said, have you ever meditated? And I said, no, I've never meditated. And he, he, you heard about the Buddha. I said, well, what's the Buddha? <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, and then he explained that to me and he, 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 um, he invited me to uh, meditate and I really enjoyed that. I, I found it very difficult, of course, but I enjoyed it. And I continued to explore what it meant because it meant exploring one's mind, basically, one's heart-mind, I'd prefer to say. So, uh, and, yeah. and that was really, that's how I came to it. And I realized that it was a, a wonderful way of kind of, uh, moving out of whatever suffering I was experiencing. Yeah. So, what do you mean by heart mind? Heart mind, heart mind is actually the term, um, the term that's used for mind in Asian cultures. Uh, I, I can speak a bit of Thai. Okay. And uh, the word for heart, the word for mind in Thai is jijai. Jai means heart. So, in a lot of the Asian languages, I believe. That when you say talk about the mind, you you'll include the word heart in it. And what we think, what we when they when they relate to mind as being brain and neural activities in um, the contemporary science, you find that there's neurons actually in the heart. So it's a kind of there's a, and there's a connection between the the brain and the heart with the vagal nerve and so on and so forth. So we actually have had this phenomena that's. Uh, coming from our brain and our hearts um, that, that we call the mind. So when I talk about heart and mind, I'm talking about consciousness, basically, awareness. Okay. And so where did your practice grow from there? So you, you were exposed to meditation through your friend at college. And, yeah. And what did, where did the journey take you? Because from my understanding, it, it was you didn't sort of just dip your toe in. You kind of yeah. went, you know, really immersed yourself. 
Yeah, I, uh, I became very interested in Tibetan Buddhism, uh, and I went on a few retreats. I went to um, a retreat in Queensland at a place called Chenrezig, uh, and that was with Lama Zopa and Lama Yeshe. This was in 1975 or 1976, something like that. Yeah, I think it was 1975. And um, then I really enjoyed that. I really found it well. Enjoy is not the right word. I found it really helpful. Okay. <laughs> it was quite difficult. It was quite difficult. And then I was living in Melbourne. Uh, I came back to Melbourne. I was living as an art student, and I was, you know, exploring spirituality in the spiritual supermarket of Melbourne in the seventies. <laughs> I can imagine going to churches and going to Ananda Marga places and uh, going to all sorts of different places. Um, and then I met a Buddhist monk, a Theravadan Buddhist monk called Prakendi Polo. I was also living at a place called Tara House. In, uh, in Melbourne, uh, which was a, a Tibetan Buddhist orientation house uh, where we, we meditated together and we lived together. Uh, then I met a Theravada Buddhist monk and I was sort of getting a little bit confused about things and he said it was quite simple. He says, you just become aware of your body and mind and life, basically, and you stay present. And I said, that's pretty simple. It's pretty straightforward. And I said, well, how can I do this? How can I do this a lot? Because I'm finding this really helpful in my life. And he said, oh, you could become a Buddhist monk in Thailand if you wished. So I set my intention to become a Buddhist monk in Thailand. So that's what I did the next wow. year. Uh, and that was, I ordained in 1977, I think. Yeah, something like that. And then uh, I, I stayed a Buddhist monk for a couple of years, and uh, two years actually almost two years, and I lived in the northeast Thailand, I lived mostly in the northeast Thailand in a, in a monastery in um, near Sakonakorn, uh, a monastery that didn't have any other English speakers, so I had to learn to speak a bit of Thai. Yeah. To understand the teachers and enough to get by. Um, and then uh, I stayed there and uh, it was very powerful. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so that's how I got that's how I got involved in that. So definitely um, went, you know, boots and all into the experience. So, so yeah, it was, great. It was really it was, it was very it was very difficult. I can um, imagine. Very very powerful. Uh, it was powerful in the sense that for me it was like stepping back two thousand six hundred years or two thousand five hundred years, living in the time of the Buddha. Um, it was quite simple. We're in the monastery that I lived, we didn't have, we had power there with a power generator, but in our little huts and our little kutis and so on, we didn't have power and used to carry water and, uh, you know, it was quite a simple life. And I used to walk down to the local village uh, to go Pindapart, which was arms round um, with my bowl. And often we'd have food at the temple too. They had a big kitchen there. So for me, it was like stepping back in time. Uh, and I could see that the issues that the Buddha talked about, you know, 2,500 years ago in India were similar to issues that were happening in contemporary times, like modern times. You know, we still had a, a mind and we still had difficulties that arise from that mind and uh, we still had, you know, drives and all sorts of relationships and so on that were part of being human that was similar to part of being human in India. It wasn't so different. 
And what the Buddha was, uh, what he was providing was a way to work through the difficulties, work through the suffering that we eventually have as being human. So, Like the emotional yeah. pain. Emotional pain, physical, physical pain as well. Um, there's a term in, there's a term in Buddhism, uh, well, it's not even in Buddhism, it's in, it's a Pali term, it's called Dukkha. Dukkha, is, as far as, I'm not a Pali scholar, but it's a Pali term, Pali is an ancient Indian language, it's actually a composition of a number of different ancient uh, dialects of around the time of the Buddha. Uh, and Dukkha virtually, literally translates as suffering, but it's that's probably not a very good translation. Um, because dukkha refers to unsatisfactoriness. When I was a monk, I used to chant about dukkha, and um, dukkha is the difficulties associated with aging, sickness, and death, pain, grief, lamentation, and despair. These are the terms that they used in Pali. Yeah. Um, getting what you don't want, not getting what you want, and being parted from what you uh, is close to you, what you're attached to. And dukkha is also clinging to the sense that we have a self that is lasting and independent. What I mean by that is that we're not, we're sort of cut off, we, we cling to this idea that we're going to last forever, that we're permanent, that we're always going to be young and healthy and strong and so on. Uh, that very sense of clinging to that is unsatisfactory because things change. So the whole path of uh, the teachings of the Buddha is to... Uh, break free from that bind of feeding into dukkha. And what the, the Buddha talked about was uh, four realities, basically. The fact that there is dukkha, and dukkha literally translates as uh, an ill-fitting axle in a wheel. Cut <laughs> <laughs> means the space, cut, K-H-A, means the space in a wheel. Uh, and duk, the duk prefix means sort of not quite right, ill-fitting. So you can imagine an axle going into a wheel that's not quite fitting correctly. Yeah. So what we have is this wobbly wheel, um, so things aren't going perfectly, correctly. So that's the, tra that's the literal translation of the word dukkha. And so um, the realities that the Buddhists have discovered and what he taught were the realities that life can be dukkha, uh, but that's only 25% of the truth. There's a, there's a cause for dukkha, and the causes are, in fact, in one's own heart, mind, the root causes. I mean, there's lots of things happening in the world, of course, um, and that's not, um, not to say that there's difficulty arising in the world, but it's this interaction with difficulty that arises in the world and the way we, way we perceive it and the way we understand the difficulties um, the root causes, according to the Buddha, uh, tendencies to grasp and cling onto things as lasting forever. Uh, the tendencies to push things away and reject things and condemn things as uh, not, not good and uh, rejecting them completely, not accepting the way things are. And the tendencies to be kind of confused about things, not seeing clearly, like seeing... Uh, unclearly, basically, see, misperceiving phenomena, misperceiving life, misapprehending it, miscon misconceiving it. Mis Almost like a, 
like a distortion almost, like where... Yes, yeah, distortion. Distortion is a good word. Uh, distortion is a really good word. It's like we become distorted in the way we see things. So um, that's the first truth. The first truth, the first reality that the Buddha talked about was this reality of dukkha. That it is there, will, that there will be, yeah, there, there will be discomfort. Gonna, yeah. There's going to be difficulty. Yeah. <laughs> and the second truth, the second reality, it's called the four, these are called the Four Noble Truths. Uh, the second reality is that there is um, uh, there are causes, there are root causes for the difficulties. The third truth is that, or the third reality is that it's possible to be free. It's possible to be uh, awakened. It's possible to wake up to the patterns that we're getting caught up into. Um, often, the second cause of the, the the causes of suffering often are us getting caught up in these cycles and patterns of. Um, you know, patterns that are feed into our, our suffering. And when we wake up, we see, oh, I don't have to feed into it. I don't have to do that. I can, I can let go of, you know, certain things I'm clinging to. I can let go of my views. I can let go of my uh, grasping on and clinging to experiences. I can let go of my grasping and clinging to concepts that I think uh, that are defining myself and the world. So ideas we have about ourselves, like we can let go of yeah. the identity that maybe is not working for us or we might see ourselves as not enough or we might see ourselves as Absolutely, um, that's it. Yeah. letting go of those rules that are holding us back. Well, letting go of, you know, often we'll suffer because we're uh, clinging on to concepts about ourselves, that we should be like this or we should be like that. And uh, what, the, what this third truth is talking about is that it's possible to be free from that suffering. It's possible to be free from the difficulty. And that's not to say that life won't be uh, painful, uh, but it, it's, it's to say that we don't make it worse. I mean, there's a, there's a saying in, in Buddhism that um, there's like two arrows, or two darts actually, it's called darts. The first dart is the, re the suffering that we get from just living, like you know, the suffering of aging, sickness and death. But... Um, and the suffering of, you know, hardship, the suffering of illness and the suffering of, you know, breaking up with the relationships, the suffering of financial difficulties and so on and so forth. These are sort of inevitable things that happen in life. Yes. There's, that's one part of it. But what we're talking about here with, um, uh, with this third truth and this pro these processes of uh, liberation, and I haven't got to the fourth truth yet, but that's, yes. the, that's the way to be free. <laughs> Uh, is that we we tend to fire a second dart at ourselves. It's like we make the matters worse uh, by what we put into it, the way we feed into it. Uh, you know, we might have a we might have a concept about ourselves if that we're um, or we might we might feel that we have an aspiration or goal to achieve something, and if we don't achieve that goal, uh, we could we could accept that fact. Or we could beat ourselves up saying we're not good enough and so on and so forth. And that's the second dart coming in. What, okay. What the, what the teachings of the Buddha and mindfulness is part of this, what that, what that shows us is that we don't have to beat ourselves up. We don't have to fire the second dart. We don't have to make matters worse. We can be free from feeding into the causes of our suffering. That's not to deny suffering again. But it's just that we can make things a lot better. We can make, we can enable us to be, we can 
liberate ourselves from the vibes that we create with ourselves by getting caught up in patterns and habits that are quite destructive sometimes. Yes. So, so that comes to the third truth, uh, the fourth truth, sorry, the fourth reality is that um, there is a way to be free. There is uh, a pathway for this. There is practices that we can do. There's um, things that we can do. Actually, I want to kind of throw in a, um, a, a saying from ACT, you know what ACT is. ACT, for those listeners who don't know ACT, ACT is a, uh, uh, a, uh, what's it called? a pseudonym, uh, not a pseudonym, an acronym for um, acceptance and commitment therapy. ACT is very popular. Very wonderful therapy, uh, but anyway, there's a um, there's a saying in ACT. It goes like this: It says, "If you do what you've always done, you'll get what you always got." Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah. And so, so if you're if you if you're seeing that you're creating a pattern of suffering within yourself by and and you can see how that's happening, you can see, oh, it's because I'm doing this, and then you continue to feed into it, well, you're going to continue to get the same sort of level of dukkha, the same amount of suffering. You're going to be caught in a rut of going over and over and over again into these same patterns of suffering. So um, if you do something different, well, then uh, you don't have to, you're not feeding into the suffering anymore. So when there's, there's not a cause for suffering, suffering doesn't arise. So this is the... Um, this is where we come to the third, the fourth truth, which is the path of practice. And this path of practice involves um, views, like seeing things clearly, understanding, right intentions or motivation. Uh, once you see something's not working quite right or not quite working quite well, you have the intention to move out of that pattern, move out of that sense of suffering. So when you have that intention, you act in ways that are consistent with your understanding and your best intentions, which leads us on to um, actions, uh, speech, and what's called livelihood, or the way we live in the world, the way we make a living in the world. So when we, when we act in a way that's consistent with our best intentions, in a way that's, um, and I'll use this term, and I, I don't use this term, uh, with any shyness, uh, ethically, yeah. well, if we act ethically, in a way, and what I mean by this is uh, we act in a way that we're not harming ourselves or others, um, then we have, I said, a, a sense of uh, natural well-being that arises. Like when we're no longer feeding the causes of our suffering, we have a sense of composure that where we can cultivate our mind, and. What we do then is cultivate our mind with sometimes courageous energy because sometimes it's hard to look at ourselves. It is. We'll get that distance to see it in the first place, like to get enough distance from our own thoughts and behaviours that we can we can observe what's dysfunctional and go, wow, look at me doing that again. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And so uh, we have when we have a composure of our mind, like when we're not feeding into our suffering, when we're acting ethically, in some ways, when we're not harming ourselves and others, it's a, we have a chance to um, reflect, to see our mind. And so what we have is uh, energy, mindfulness, and concentration. The eight factors on the path, uh, right view, 
and I'm using the word right here uh, in a sense that it is complete and correct and um, suitable. So right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood. Uh, the fifth, the fifth factor on this eightfold path uh, of the the path to freedom is uh, energy or effort. It's called right effort. Sometimes it's called courageous effort. Um, and then we have mindfulness, and then we have uh, concentration, which is the the gathering in of attention and the clarity of attention, bring it all in and uh, placing your attention in one spot. And then that leads on to right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness and concentration. It sort of goes in a cycle. It goes in an interdependent cycle. And it's like a beautiful so, summary of, you know, if we can really get a handle on, on all those things, you can see how quite clearly that would lead to, um, you know, living a life of purpose, even what you were saying before about, you know, right, was it right career, like right? Oh, right livelihood, yeah, right, right livelihood. livelihood. You know, someone can be on the doll and have right livelihood. Right, right livelihood. Right livelihood is the sort of livelihood that supports a life of uh, well-being and happiness for oneself and others. Um, you know, it's like... It's like you're not you're not feeding into the suffering of the world. I mean, everyone has to work out what's right for them. They have their own pathways, uh, but there's some things that obviously lead to the suffering of others or oneself. Um, I think of I don't know, like dealing in arms, for example, or you know. Yeah. I know that you know. I won't go into the debate about the, um, being in the armed forces and so on, but. De dealing in illegal arms or um, substances that, you know, illicit substances that are poison for others or, you know, somehow somehow doing, a, creating a, a dicey, usually criminal occupation, for example, that, that might be uh, a way of supporting yourself that's not helping others. Right. So, yes. so ripping people off. <laughs> yeah. It's not, it's not helping oneself or others in the long run. Um, so and that... Yeah. So, if my. I, yeah, sorry. Yeah, go on. No, you go. <laughs> if I when I when I when I if I was to live in a way where I was ripping people off or treating them, deceiving them or uh, treating them badly in some ways, some ways like um, my my conscience wouldn't sort of be clear. I, I couldn't. It's like you can't go out and you know rape, pillage, and plunder by day and come home and meditate at night if you know what I mean no I know what you mean but even on a smaller scale you know I think you know just how we go about our day and understanding yeah. that by being short with that person in the retail store absolutely because yeah, we're having right. a bad day you know like I know it's often hard for us you know when we're not practicing mindfulness to regain control but but having no thought for for that impact like we're merely having a bad day and so we project that onto the next person we see and then you know it's like paying it forward in a bad way you know but I th yeah. think what you're saying on a smaller scale for the average person is it's sometimes going wow I'm, I am having a really bad day um, and that's something I can I can process using some strategies I don't need to um, perhaps take this into this next space that I'm going into yeah yeah it's like um if we if we can explain mindfulness now, there's a lot of ideas yeah, about mindfulness. Yeah, let's do that. Let's do that because mindfulness is clearly just a part of what you know yes, your work just, is involved. 
yeah, it's just one factor in this uh, big pathway, this, this big, big system. Uh, and the factor, what we call mindfulness in uh, the Buddhist tradition, um, is literally, it comes from a word called sati, which literally means to remember or to recollect. And uh, in this case, what we're doing is um, we're, we're recollecting the present. We're being present. Uh, we're being here, here now, uh, but we're uh, remembering to be present as opposed to forget, forgetting to be present. Yes, okay. We'll forget, we forget to be present and we sort of lose ourselves in our forgetfulness. We forget what we're doing. We forget, you know, we forget the important things in our lives. Like you were talking about going to the shop and being short with a shopkeeper. You might, if you can remember the purpose, like your greater purpose, for example, uh, and it may include being kind to oneself and others. Uh, then, if you, if when you forget that, you may become short. If you can remember that, you may remember. Oh, it's really important for me to not become short with this person in in the in the shop. It's a, it's important for me to maintain a a sense of um, openness and um, um, a sense of understanding our common humanity, for example. And so on and so forth. So, mindfulness. One way I understand mindfulness is uh, remembering to bring attention to immediate experience with care and discernment. Uh, that's one way I would define mindfulness, and that actually comes from someone called Bhikkhu Bodhi, who uh, who's been a translator of many Buddhist suttas. Okay. Uh, so it's remembering to be remembering to bring attention to immediate experience with care and discernment. And this, this thing about remembering is really important. It's like we can remember to be present, like here now with what we're doing, as opposed to forgetting what we're doing. We can also remember to do something in the future. Like we can remember our purpose, like uh, just going to the shops, for example. We might remembering what we're doing rather than forgetting what we're doing. Like it's easy to get distracted on our pathways you know, in our day-to-day -day activities. We can forget what we're doing. Uh, we forget what we mean to do and so on and so forth. So coming back to your example of being in the shops, we could forget that our purpose and, our, you know, our bigger purpose in life is to be actually uh, getting along with people. And we could forget that and we can be quite rude and harsh to someone or even unethical to other people. So, so the so role of mindfulness then? The role of mindfulness would be to remember, to have a sort of prospectively, prospectively remembering our purpose and what we're doing. Um, by practicing? I, by practicing it, by, uh, by being clear about your intention, for example. Uh, being, clear, being clear about your motivation for what you're doing. Um, but the other, the other part of it is that remembering the lessons from the past. Like the way, the way we're developing our understanding is by re remembering to be present. So we're understanding the way you know, phenomena occurs. We're remembering cause-effect relationships for things like when I do this, this sort of happens, so maybe, maybe next time I won't do that and so on and so forth. And also remembering lessons from the past. Um, look, I'll give you an example. Yeah. I often use this example. Yeah. Um, and 
because mindfulness is not just being aware in the moment. Um, it's not just that. I mean, that's a component of mindfulness, but it's not as just far that. as, yeah, it's not just that as, as far as we're talking about in, in Buddhist uh, terminology or Buddhist understanding. It's like if I was to go on a, a track in the bush, I was going to a long walk in the bush, and, uh, and someone said to me at the beginning, okay, I want you to be really mindful when you're going on this walk. Um, and they take us in there. They take us into the, into the bush. We're walking along the bush and we're saying, oh, I'm being really mindful. I'm, I'll be really present. So I'm you know, taking in the, the, the six senses. I'm taking in you know, how beautiful it is and the sunshine and I'm taking in the smells and the sights and the sounds and all the rest of it being completely present. And then at the end of the track, my friend says, oh, okay, I've got to go somewhere else now. And they, you were mindful on the way in so you can get yourself out. And you, you say to them, oh, hold on a minute. I, I was just being really present. I wasn't paying attention to all the things around me. I was paying attention to all the things around me and what was happening within myself. But I wasn't paying attention to the pathway so much. I was paying attention to the present moment. Uh, if you were to practice mindfulness the way we're talking about it in um, the Buddhist sense, is it would be that you would walk along this track and you would remember markers along the way. Yes. And you would, remember, you would remember, oh, that's right, when I passed that creek, it was that, that tree, and I made a, a right turn here and so on and so forth. So you would remember all the, all the things that happened along the path. So when you got to the end of the path, you could remember to get out. You could remember the pathway out. So mindfulness, in our, in, we refer this to our lives. It's like remembering the landscape of our lives remembering things that happen in our lives. So this recollection about the past in terms of remembering, the remembering component of mindfulness refers to remembering the events that have happened in the past so that we can cultivate wisdom, basically. And wisdom is this understanding of, uh, this includes understanding and also our uh, intentions. So now, at a practical level, mindfulness means remembering to be present for bodily experience, remembering to be present for um, emotional experience, remembering to be present for mental experience, like thoughts uh, and emotions and moods and so on. And it's also remembering patterns in our lives, to be attentive to patterns in our lives, like patterns that we might do that increases our suffering and patterns that we might do that increases our sense of freedom and well-being. So when we can do that, we gain wisdom. So yes. does, that, does that make sense? Absolutely. No, I think, you know, exactly what you're saying is that you can't, um, you can practice mindfulness, but some of, you're missing some of the points in that it's it's that reflection and how you inform yourself um, based on that reflection and recollection and how you yep. move forward from that is is really critical as well. It's not just about being present and in the moment and relaxing your body, although that is of great benefit, obviously. But yep. to have it be much more of a powerful experience, it's also going, you know what, yesterday when I said that mean thing about Betsy at work, um, I didn't feel good about that. I, and regardless yeah. of how Betsy feels, it didn't feel good for me. So perhaps maybe I don't speak about her in that way or anyone in that way. Is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, look, there's there's a practice I do, and I learned this practice in uh, in well, from my teacher in Thailand, uh, you know, thirty years ago or more now. 
30, almost 35 years ago. Um, or over 40, uh, 35 years ago, yeah. So the practice was about, he, he would say to me, you know, he'd call, call me cum rather than Malcolm. They just said, call me cum. Come, I want you to go home every afternoon or every, every evening before you go to bed. I want you to recollect the day's events. Go through it in your mind and just remember the things you did. I thought, oh, okay. So I started doing that. At first, I couldn't remember much. Uh, but then, you know, as, as I practiced more and more, I would remember more and more things about the day that had passed. And then I, when I come to the next day, like the following day, I would, whatever I would do, I'd remember, this, remember bringing attention to it, like the way I followed the, um, the towels that you wipe your feet with, the way I, the way I ate and how much I ate and uh, what I noticed and so on and so forth throughout the day so that I could remember it in the evening when I was doing this exercise. And it, this exercise got longer and longer. You know, first it started with a couple of minutes because that's all I could remember. And then it got, you know, to a half an hour and then it got to an hour and then it got to two hours. And it was like I could remember everything that had passed. And um, what I noticed was that it enhanced my ability to be present during the day. And also I started to have a kind of a reflection about things. I thought, oh, that didn't work so well. Next time I'll, I'll do it differently. And um, what I do these days is usually before I go to bed, I'll do, a, I'll do a loving kindness practice and also do this practice. I remember the day's events and I'll reflect back. Was this working well? Did this work well? Did this increase my suffering or decrease it? Uh, and it's, it's a reflection. And if it increased my suffering, I think, well, okay, I'll, I'll set the intention to do less of that. If it decreased my suffering, increased my well-being, I'll set my intention to do more of that. If this was in line with my greater purpose in my you know my life purpose in in for in values with values that are really important to me, I'll I'll increase that. I'll try to do that a bit more. Yeah. So and it, it was interesting because I I worked in um, I haven't mentioned how I worked as a psychologist, but since I saw you, I I think I met you in when was it about two thousand and ten or two thousand eleven? Yeah, about then about I think that. it was. Yeah. Yeah. Since since then, I've worked in on Christmas Island. I worked in Christmas Island for sixteen months. Um, in That'd the be detention interesting. Center. Yeah. Yeah, it was very very interesting, and I managed to teach. I don't know how many groups. I probably would have taught about one hundred sixty different one session groups of the with the asylum seekers, like um, people from Afghanistan, Iran, Iraq, uh, Sri Lanka. Um, Sudan and all these, all the, all the, all the, the countries that um, that asylum seekers are coming from, and I used to, we used to have an interpreter and I teach them mindfulness, um, and I told them about this activity one time, and they said, oh yeah, that's that's one of the the activities that we have in the Quran. We sit back and we reflect on the day's events, and we reflect: has this been in the service of um, our purpose or not? So it was very interesting. Yeah. There was a lot of correlation. It was very interesting to talk to these people. And actually, I used to talk to these, we used to have run groups and we talk about mindfulness. And the way I used to explain mindfulness wasn't, of course, from the Buddhist perspective. I was talking to a lot of Islamic people. And some of the, some of the people there um, 
had actually been abused by Buddhist governments, uh, like the Rohingyans felt they'd been abused and uh, uh, discriminated against by the the Burmese or the the Buddhist government of Myanmar, and also um, is the Rohingyans of who were also um, asylum seekers, and also the Sri Lankans, the Tamil Sri Lankans. Often they'd be had felt that they'd been been abused and tortured in some cases by government forces that were predominantly Buddhist. So, so I couldn't dare mention Buddhism, and I wouldn't in that context. But I would always teach according to these um, these um, principles that I'm talking about: the Eightfold Path and the uh, the Four Truths, the Four Realities. Okay. So. It would it would work with them as well. Uh, we talk about wisdom. We talk about uh, the power of wisdom, and uh, and one way you can cultivate wisdom is to practice mindfulness, remembering to be present, and um, and and trusting our own wisdom as well. Trusting that you know we can learn from ourselves. We can look within ourselves to know um, to see how we feel. In terms of values and and how we're behaving, like you said, it, we we're looking at how it works for us, um, yeah. and the only place that's going to come from, you know, can be from that inner reflection. Even though we can be quite critical of ourselves, obviously, this is a practice that takes time, as you said, to cultivate, um, to have yeah. compassion not just for others, but compassion for ourselves as well. Yes, yes. Well, the, the interesting thing about um, wisdom. Uh, well, I used to, when we used to talk about wisdom with the asylum seekers, by the way, I wouldn't say this is what wisdom is. I mean, that was pretty boring. I mean, I could say, <laughs> you know, this is the Buddhist concept of wisdom. I didn't say that. I'd say, what do you think wisdom is? And, um, and they'd give and their meaning. They'd give their meaning. And there was one little, and I've told this on many workshops that I've done since. There was one little girl, um, an Iranian girl, who's about eight or nine years old in one of the groups I was running. Because uh, I used to run them with families and so on. Um, and she's putting up her hand, wanting to say what she thought wisdom was. And I was one running, running one group with uh, some Iranians, and you know, they were giving really beautiful ph- philosophical responses to what they, they you know, the, the way they conceived of wisdom. This little girl put up her hand and eventually came to her and she said, Wisdom is knowing what is good and what is bad. Wisdom is knowing what is good and what is bad. Just so beautifully simple. Yeah. And I said, wow, that's fantastic. And I said, I added to this. Wisdom is knowing what is good and what is what is bad and being able to act in a way that increases the good and decreases the bad. So that, that was my response. To, wow. Yeah. I must apologize. Yeah. I, my dogs are going a bit crazy in the background. Oh, that's <laughs> so. <laughs> that's amazing I mean I would love to talk to you for hours but I'm just starting to get a bit conscious of time so I was wondering if, if, I, if, if I could just ask you a few questions so yep. what is it I mean obviously you've had a lot of experience in a lot of different cultures um, what and my dogs continue to bark very loudly and my daughter just came and opened it's an opportunity to pra- practice mindfulness isn't yes, it yes I need to focus um, so what have you pardon Go on, go on. <laughs> what have you learned about people through your studying and teaching of mindfulness? What have you learned about others? You know, I, uh, I think about, I think that we're, I, I think what I've learned about others is that we're all united in our experience of dukkha. 
and we're all also reunited. We're all united in our ability to be free. Uh, yeah. We all have the potential to be free. And there's a word that comes to mind. I mean, I when I think of other people, I can't help but think of my heart and the way that when we realise this common humanity. By, by the way, common humanity is one of the um, one of the uh, factors of you know, contemporary psychology, particularly with mindful self-compassion and um, uh, compassion-focused therapy that are, that are therapeutic uh, approaches that are emerging very strongly now. Yes. Um, the, the sense of when I, when I can acknowledge this sense of uh, common humanity, the other thing that I notice is that everyone's quite, quite beautiful. Everyone has a, something that's lovable. Everyone has um, uh, so a very beautiful quality. This is loving kindness. And also, I have compassion and have compassion for the suffering. That's the way I feel about, that's the lessons I've learned from others. Um, and what about yourself? What have you learned about yourself through all these years of practice and study and teaching mindfulness? Oh, I'm human. That's what I've learned. That you're human. That I'm, I'm just like everyone. I'm just like other human, humans. You know, we're all united in the sense that we suffer and that we have the possibility to be free. And that um, there is, uh, I mean, I'm hesitant to use the word love, but because it's, you know, it's misunderstood in many different ways. But I guess love, love uh, incorporates the qualities of compassion and appreciation and gratitude and um, um, yeah. loving kindness, which is warm friendliness. And also, I mean, I can't help but say the term equanimity, which is this sense of peacefulness about things. So what have I learned? I learned that, you know, I'm human, but it's also possible to be free. So, so what, about how, what about your practice of mindfulness? How, what do you do in your average day to keep yourself grounded or focused and balanced? I, I endeavour to remember to be present. <laughs> <laughs> To remember to be, this is it, you know, this is the way things are. You know, if you're, if you're in a queue and you're running late or if you're in the traffic and you're running late, uh, and in, in my case, I, I work in London at the moment. I'm working in a community mental health team in London and I ride my bicycle through London traffic. Wow. <laughs> to get to the place that I work. Uh, <clears throat> it's remembering to be present <clears throat> in that. Um, to remember to not sweat the small stuff, to remember your purpose. Um, so there's simple things. Some things we can, sometimes we can remember to be present with, like just uh, being present with a, a sip of tea or um, turning on the tap or opening a door or um, when you're waiting at the traffic lights, having a breath. Yeah, just, just in, breathing. And relaxing. Yeah. Breathing and breathing out, relaxing. Just having a... Um, a slow, slowing down your breathing for a bit, just the breathing in, breathing out, relaxing, here now, just this, just this, here now. Taking a moment, savouring the moment. Yeah. Um, and, of course, uh, supporting that practice by having the opportunity to have a mental shower every day and having, you know, mental and emotional nutrition. Like I, 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 I try to sit twice a day. Uh, when I say sit, I try to do what's called formal meditation practice, which is sitting on, on a cushion or sitting on a chair or uh, relaxing somehow. 
every day. In the morning, it's almost like it sets my intention for the day. It sets the, the scene for the day. Uh, I practice mindfulness of breath or whatever the practice is appropriate for the time. And in the afternoon, when I come home from work, okay, great. I'll another sit, so I'll let it go. Yeah. So how can people find you or your um, resources you may have developed or if people are wanting more from you after listening to this, what should they go? Uh, well, I do have a website. Um, you can download free download traps on the on the website. Um, I do regularly. Yes, it's an amazing, wonderful website. So www.malhuxa.com. And if you come up with a um, if you come up with a if this site is under construction, just put a forward slash WordPress on the end of malhuxa.com. Yep, and so uh, that's M A L H U X T E R. T E R. And I mean, there's other things that are available. There's lots of Lots of courses available. There's um, mindfulness-based stress reduction available. There's mindful self-compassion available. There's mindful. Uh, there's compassion-focused therapies available. There's a lot of uh, a lot of possibilities. I mean, the internet is amazing at the moment. Sure um, is. Type in. Although you, you, it takes a lot to kind of weave through everything, I suppose. But uh, you know, mindfulness, wisdom, whatever. Just type it into the internet. So that's that one. That's one way of accessing. Yeah. That's been very enlightening, Malcolm. Well, thank you for joining me. Thank you. And thank <laughs> likewise. And thank you for listening in and joining Malcolm and I. Don't forget to support the show by telling your friends, or you can go to our Facebook page, Carrie Thompson Casey. That's Thompson without a P. And like us there and give us your feedback. You can also subscribe to the show in iTunes, and don't forget to give the show a five-star rating if you liked it. You can also support us. Um, by going to the website and subscribing there. So thank you for joining me and see you on the next episode of The Abnormal Psychologist where we share real people's stories and give you real ideas so that you can realise your potential. Take care. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.